Hello everybody and welcome to episode two of Humans Need Apply. I am Chris and I'm joined as per usual, or as will be usual, by Anna Davy Mitchell. How you Hi, doing? I'm okay. How's your week been? My week's been ooh, uh busy, yeah. yes. And I'm feeling a little bit um low. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> low on energy right now. Yeah. Uh but I'm gonna wake up for this conversation, I promise. Yeah. Yeah. It's not helped by the fact that so we're we're trying a new sound setup today, gang. Um we're we're in a and it's got like a little mini office box. Yeah, yes. In, in her garden. Yeah. So we're in there. So it's a, it's a little bit warm. Um, we had to close the windows to stop the cat meowing. Yes. Um, and but, the neighbours chattering. Yeah, yeah. But we're hoping it'll be better. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, my, my week's been pretty stressful as well. Yeah, how's your week been, Chris? Yeah, yeah thanks, Co. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, it, it's been okay. Very busy time and uh, trying to balance a lot of things. And uh, yeah, we we've been putting out some independent content on some of the topics we've been talking about mm. and um we were really happy with some of the feedback from the last episode of this yeah thank you so much everybody for the feedback yeah i mean it was mostly good stuff a lot of please do a little bit better sound wise yes. so we're, we're working on that um but um yeah also some some good kind of general questions and things to talk about a bit more um and some of which stem from some some errata that anna wanted to clarify at the beginning here anyway yes so. one yeah one error and one that i just wanted to expand on um so one error was i think i talked about a google podcast um and how that related to a person of power um in uh the church of england um and that was incorrect so uh google podcast is really good that's called talks at google yeah and i was listening to the john lennox ai and the future of humanity um podcast and that's why that was in the forefront of my mind but the other one was uh stephen croft's how does the christian faith help us reimagine human flourishing in a world of ai so that's the podcast uh sorry the episode and then podcast is talking theology yeah um and that it's quite one... a rogue one to reference actually now that i think about it yeah so. i know i was sent it by a friend a very long time ago actually and it's stuck in my memory and the reason being is because the it was it was talking to um the right reverend dr stephen croft um who's the bishop of oxford and the founding member of the uk center for ethics and innovation and he also served on the house of lords select committee on ai um and i found the relationship between his faith and his work in AI mm. so interesting, especially from an ethics perspective. Yeah. I think I talked about this a little bit last time, but it's just kind of this idea of his faith um, helping him consider what it means to be human and consider what it means to be a good human, a moral human, and how that kind of religious text yeah. um, helps him navigate that as a human being. But then also his work within AI definitely flourishing from that and moving from that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, ultimately how he considers AI um, a, a good way of thinking, again, about what it means to be human and, and what good we could do with ai and maybe some errors that we could face if we yeah. take a so-called wrong path with ai too yeah um, I, I think a lot of the conversations that we have are going to end up coming back to bordering on theological questions absolutely because there's um we had a bit of a conversation about this offline about kind of post enlightenment there's a dislike of the concept of like the non-scientific mm. um that there are unprovable statements that may or may not be true um, or at the very least useful to consider that don't quite fit within the Socratic method. Yeah. Um, 
and so yeah we're more in the branches of kind of philosophy and theology there but a lot of what we're talking about is going to be adjacent to those topics yeah absolutely so yeah yeah and although i don't prescribe to uh that religion myself uh or any uh religion really but um I do think that it's really important that we consider that people from those spaces can also have valuable conversations and mm. valuable um, incitements. Well, given um, in, in insight. insights. Yeah, insight. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, I don't know. Where I was going with that word um, on on the topic of co- of this conversation. Well, I think um, given they make up as more than 50% of the planet's population. Yeah. I think we should, it's definitely worth yeah, keeping I just, in the loop. Yeah, I feel like sometimes there can be this negative, under, like a, a, a negativity surrounding people talking about science and talking about technology who also come from spaces of theology um, and religion. Yeah. Um, I mean, th- this is a much bigger conversation to, to be included another time, not in the yeah, okay. section, but like... My, my take on it is everybody has a religion. Everybody has a belief system of some kind. Mm. Um, most are kind of unaware of it. I, I think most people have never been trained in it or, or guided through the process of discovering exactly what that is for them. But I think a lot of what's going to be needed in terms of, especially if the avenue is democratically figuring out AI, people are going to need to you know, be taught how to figure those things out for themselves and represent their own ideals and things yeah. like that. So it's going to be a challenge. Um, the other one that I want to talk about, so I just wanted to clarify a little bit about the Will I Am piece in Saudi Arabia. So um, I think this is more like an addition to what I was talking about yeah. last time. So Will I Am has been um, involved um, in some investment and technology forums within Saudi Arabia, but one of the m- most interesting ones that I I've found was that he spoke at Leap Technology Conference in Riyadh. Um, and LEAP is an annual tech conference founded in 2022 by the Ministry of Communication and Information Technology and the Saudi Federation for Cybersecurity Programming and Drones, and also an informer company, which is partly owned by a private company and the government. Um, so, yes, don't know if we need to talk about that anymore. I yeah. just think that that adds some interesting context and additional nuggets to that i mean i'd love to be a fly on the wall in the in the discussions with will i am oh yeah the contract signing well yeah and things like that but also like i wonder to what extent he realizes like what he's in like what what he's involved in yeah um i i can definitely see a scenario where i I don't know enough about will i am to make any comment but like is it possible that will i am's just like a uh an innocent bystander who just thinks he's doing some stuff for his oh, art. I don't know. I think he's like quite an intelligent dude. Um, yeah, well, this is what I'm saying. So I have no idea if if he is intelligent and he knows exactly what he's getting into. I don't know which option's more interesting, actually. Uh, both. Yeah. Yeah, like <laughs> yeah, they both have interesting sides. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and also sidestepping into this idea of the celebrity and how that's having such an impact on how we talk about AI. And also just emerging technologies in mm. in general, and also the um, kind of influence that this idea of celebrity is having on how these things are coming to market yeah. and how they're being imagined and discussed in the popular imaginary um, and popular narrative. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting one. Anyway. Yeah. Moving on. So. I think you had a very specific thing that you wanted to bring to the table yeah. today. Yeah, so 
last week I put out a, a post on LinkedIn, the, the, the height of philosophical inquiry forum. Um, and um, yeah, but basically a lot of the conversations I've been having with people recently have been around automation and the impact that that will have on the workforce. Um, and it feels like it merits its own conversation and that there'll be some off branches to it as well. Mm-hmm. Work is a like a very, very fundamental part of civilization. Mm-hmm. And I don't just mean that in terms of the economy. I mean, spiritually, the concept of a hard day's work is meaningful for a significant yeah, proportion what value of the population. You bring exactly. To society. Yeah. yeah. Um, but even then, like almost metaphysically, you know, work and entropy and, you know, the, the fact that our work is adding information complexity to a system, which if you believe in the effective accelerationist movement is the, the only surefire way to, you know, uh, propagate human existence, mm-hmm. which, which is interesting. And I'm sure we'll talk about accelerationism at some other yeah. point in future. <laughs> um, uh, and yeah, I, I think there's a couple of misconceptions or at least little bits missing to the model that most people have in terms of thinking about the economy built on work as it is mm. and the impact that the AI will have. Um, and I think for me, it all stems from uh, the historical bias we have um, towards something called the lump of labour fallacy. Mm-hmm. So this was kind of first brought up around um, industrial revolution, uh, machines being made that can replace cotton workers, that can do do all of this textile fabrication, cars, etc., etc., mm-hmm. um, or even things like oil rigs. Yeah. What's going to happen to all of these people? They're going to be made redundant and blah 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 blah. And it just never happened, really. Well, it did in the short term. Mm-hmm. But like in the mid to long term, like all of those people retrained, found other jobs, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. Actual unemployment didn't go up in the grand scheme. And so people have started referring to this economically as the lump of labor fallacy. The idea that there is a bulk of labor, mm-hmm. an amount of work to be done, mm-hmm. and that when you hand some of that lump over to AI, there is less for people to do. Mm-hmm. Historically, I will fully uh, concede that the lump has just grown bigger every time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think that's going to change. I think the lump of of work required is going to perpetually go up. Mm-hmm. I think the key thing that's being missed throughout all of this, and uh, which leads me to call it the lump of labour fallacy fallacy, is um, that I think the skill requirement for newly created jobs is also going up at a dramatic rate. Mm-hmm. So I think pre-industrial revolution, realistically... Um, all automation didn't increase the IQ requirement on average for workers. So just because textiles being automated, you know, there was still abundant lumberjack work to be done. Yeah. IQ requirements. I'm using IQ very... I was about to say, I wanted to pick that. I didn't know if this was the right point to do that. Yeah, sure. So I'm using IQ as a generic term for human capability requirement. Yes, which is... Uh, I have an issue with IQ as yeah. as being that measuring tool. Um, you replace it with any uh, reasonable metric of human capability that you like, even domain specific. I don't really mind. I'm just using IQ because it's kind of well understood. Yeah. So and- for this conversation, I think it's a useful. Yeah. But maybe we could talk about those tools and the maths that's used in order to get to them. Um, and... Um, how that has is going to have an impact on how we think about people in relation to 
technology. Yeah. I mean, if, if anything, it's interesting. Like, how do we measure the intelligence of an AI system? Yes. The only way that we really do it now is like measuring how many petaflops or how much training time it's had, mm -hmm. uh, how many compute hours of training. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think our metrics need to get better. I, IQ is just... Um, the, the, the way I've, I've heard it explained, which I think... I'll add two things to the way it's explained, which I think adds some utility to it in this particular instance. Mm. But again, this is a generic use of, for, for, for human capability, whether it's intelligence, whether it's physical aptitude, it, it is almost irrelevant. Um, IQ does not measure intelligence. Mm. IQ measures whatever IQ measures. Okay. It, it's measuring something. It's consistent in participants. A person taking an IQ test tomorrow will test the same in a year's time. So we know that, and, and you can verify that, um, it, it's called test-retest reliability. And IQ seems to have that for anyone below like 115 IQ. Mm. Anything above 115 IQ, IQ is pretty much useless. Mm. It, it's, it's, a, it's a useless metric because it doesn't correlate to anything beyond that point. Which brings me to my second point, which is IQ is not a good measure of intelligence. It is quite a good measure of stupidity. Oh. So it's it's good at discriminating the bottom percentile, and it's horrifying at dis uh, discriminating anything above that. So can I can I reframe that as it's really good at uh, seeing who is very good at regurgitating certain types of information, and it's maybe good at uh, showing where other people may not be good at regurgitating certain types of information. So. I would say almost, so it's not quite about the regurgitation of info. Yeah. IQ tests tend to not require a huge amount of pre-training or knowledge. Mm. Generally speaking, what's actually being tested is pattern recognition. And the main reason that that's used is because pattern recognition is a, you know, it's fundamentally useful in language, in information processing, in etc, etc. Music. Music. So yeah. pr pretty much any domain that you can think of, the ability to pattern match and pattern predict is really, really useful. Okay. Let's pause this yeah. and go back because yeah. I feel like we're going on a tangent. Yeah. That's, so, yeah. Yeah. So the crux of it is IQ is a flawed measure. Um, it's uh, It's got its own history to it. We've given some tidbits there, but um, re replace for the sake of this conversation the word IQ with whatever reasonable human capability metric you'd like. And I think my argument still holds. Okay. Um, if, if you can think of one that this doesn't hold to, I'd be happy to interrogate that. I'll go back and think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this will be one of the, the, the post post upload quandaries um, or, or an errata for next week, perhaps, if people oh, have feedback. Um, so the, the way I think about it is human capability tends to increase, uh, let's call it roughly linearly. Mm. Every generation, people get better at stuff and their, uh, our knowledge base increases. Our ability to attack said knowledge base doesn't increase at the same rate as the knowledge base itself. So a lot of people try to counter this. It's like, yeah, but look how much data we have and how much stuff we can do with that data. Mm. It's like, for me, it's I'm looking at raw ability. Um, we have some better tools that help do things, and we have some additional knowledge and data that we can make use of. But our actual fundamental compute capability, our um, education, does not grow much more than linearly. Um, and, and I'm positing that as an axiom. Again, I think there are variances of this argument with different functions put in here um what matters is the kind of overall pattern mm. i then posit that the rate of capability of technologies 
um, let's say AI specifically, is growing significantly faster than linearly. Polynomially, exponentially, my guess is it's on an exponential curve. So then you plot those things. For most of human history, the actual capability independent of human usage of any technology has been zero. Mm. And it's then rising and we're now getting to a point where I, I think the, the there is a distinct, um, that th there is a very, very large proportion of human work that is just fully automatable. I think we should clarify here if we are just talking about AI or if we're talking about robotics as well. Yeah, so robotics um, uh, is definitely a part of this. I, I would even include simple technologies like tractors. Okay. Um, you know, tra tractors had a significant impact on, uh, well, I mean, even just the, the, the ox-drawn plough. I've talked about this before yeah. with you. Like, um, the ox-drawn plough single-handedly changed the makeup of the pantheon of gods mm -hmm. because it seems anthropologically that... Um, the uh, makeup of our ideals culturally maps to caloric input of the demographics of a population. Yeah. So when it, there was a 50-50 split of male to female uh, caloric input in a society, 50% of their gods were female, 50% of their gods were male. The Oxtron Plough comes along and suddenly agriculture is the domain of men and all of the gods over a period of 100 years shuffled to being male gods where they were once female. Woo! Which is interesting. <laughs> um, Good word. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it's one of those things, like, I don't know if I can necessarily posit a moral implication on that, to be honest. Um, I, I see that as just kind of like, it's it's a technological determinism. I think it's it, it really shows how seemingly small choices of people has such a ripple effect on huge amounts of how we socio-culturally structure ourselves. I, I think when we're talking at this scale, though, we're not talking about, like, five people decided to, like, edit some gods. We're talking, like, the fabric of the way we interact with the world shifted in such a fashion that our stories about the world changed. Mm. I, I, don't, I can't posit any particular human interference if anything, I'd argue that it's the technology that was driving us rather than the other way around on that particular point. So there's a feedback loop that goes on there. Mm. Let's go back to that. Yeah. Because we'll get onto that when it comes to like algorithms and TikTok and... Oh, yeah. Yeah. All of that is, again, a form of technological cultural determinism. Yeah. So, so yeah, there's a lot in there. So um, how do we come back to where we were is the, is the real question. Um... Yeah, so e even simple technologies like oxtron plows, tractors, um, I mean, hell, like wheels, mm. um, the the degree of work that that automated away, or the, yeah, I mean, it automated away a lot of work or it increased the span of the work that could be initially done. Um, so I think robotics will have an impact on this. I think various other technologies, I do include in this social technologies. Um, so I think... Uh, I think it's useful to refer to religions, for example, as social technologies. They evolve over time. We can create them. We can study them. Um, not necessarily down to the degree of hermetics and finding the underpinning laws of the universe, but um, that there are... Well, I mean, so this is kind of why I have some involvement with um, kind of Humanist UK. Yeah. Because the idea there is there are a lot of um, things we can learn historically about the way religions operated. Mm. And the fact that they did make, uh, I, I think 
we can put some of the problematic history a bit aside and look at but they didn't figure out how to make communities and generate meaning oh yeah and you look at like for example um islam's um, impact on how we study medicine and how we exactly. um, document that it's it's phenomenal yeah 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 and, and so, so things like that that there's evidently good things to be taken from them so from my perspective this is another degree of study mm. let's look at those things let's see how the religion oh turns out if we do this and this all of the work that we were doing there to try and forcefully build communities stops we found a more optimal way of generating meaning and generating blah 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 so there is like spiritual work to be automated too um if that makes sense mm. um although part of me then thinks um that there's the question of like getting a helicopter to the top of mount everest surely sure that's automating the spiritual bit i i, I think it also slightly destroys it as well i'm i'm just gonna say out loud that i'm noting i'm i'm noting the phrase automating our spirituality okay because um, I think that's a really interesting phrase that I'd like us to come back to. Yeah. Probably yeah. not today. But... Yeah. 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 Uh, so for, for those listening, we have an uh, ever-expanding list of bullet points of stuff yeah. to talk about. Um, and uh, you, you are more than welcome to add to that list. Very thankful that some people have added to that list. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Makes prioritisation a bitch, though. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so... Um, all of these technologies are effectively going to feed in. The reason I'm focusing on AI is I think it's going to be the fastest moving in the short term. Mm, okay. Um, robotics is still early in its exponential curve, but I think eventually it will. You know, once we get self-replicating robots and they are given intelligence probably in the form of AI. Uh, I, uh, some of my friends kind of accuse me of just inserting space magic, but, I, you know, I think given 100 years ago, had you shown people what we have now, they'd have called it space magic. I, mm. I think it's reasonable to assume that the invocation of space magic is going to be a perpetual thing um to a certain extent yeah um so all of these things feed in towards uh more work being done by machines which is great it's incredibly useful um it also over a period of time improves the quality of life and the gdp of the world and that's also wonderful if we use it in the right way yes yeah i mean yeah of course because if we keep mirroring the way that we go about things right now, it could actually just keep increasing the uh, polarity between uh, the so-called developing and the so-called undeveloped. I actually somewhat cynically believe that regardless of what we do, that disparity will perpetually grow. In the same way as we kind of mentioned briefly last time, the vanishing of the middle class as automation, you know, the economic development progresses. Yeah. I, I think it's one of those things. Um, power begets power, wealth begets wealth. Well, we'd have to absolutely overthrow the current system in order to make sure that that disparity didn't happen. I don't know whether or not the system will overthrow itself looking at the current trajectory of things, but um, who knows? Yeah. Um, I, I think it's almost better to consider it as um, uh, the less developed world is a system unto itself which will likely just be en engulfed. Um, I would like to think that we hit a point where, um, let, let, let's say we hit a point of post-scarcity, there would be a degree of like, okay, well, we all agreed human suffrage was a good idea, um, and now there's like no cost of doing anything because we've automated so much. L let's just like give everybody everything now. Mm. So I, I, I see that as a non-zero chance. Engulfed by tech or engulfed by the seas, we are yet to fight. So I, see, I'm, I'm actually surprisingly positive on the climate front. I, I, oh God, let's not I, do that today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, 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 that's a whole other kettle of fish. But I'm, I'm, I'm surprisingly positive on that compared to. Some we friends. should talk about how AI and AI-enabled technologies are going to be impacted and are impacted by 
climate. Climate. Sure. Um, but let's note that one down yeah, too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, coming coming to my main worry is, um, let, let's say over a period of time, the actual minimum requirements, the floor for a uh, floor of skill mm. for any remaining job yeah. in the modern world is going up. Okay. This this is fundamentally the, the key part of the model that I think most people, when they talk about the lump of labour and they look historically, this is the bit that's missing. Okay. Because we've not seen any effects of this yet. Mm. My guess is, and again, we'll, we'll use IQ, um, the minimum job requirement for most of human history uh, was like 45 IQ. Okay, that, that, that's kind of where we started. And that was pretty much everyone in the population could add something meaningful because pretty much everybody has it above that level. And by meaningful, you mean? Um, not simply work for the sake of work. Okay. So actually adds economically. So for example, if... Um, well, now we get into kind of some of Graeber's work on bullshit work. Okay. So, um, are you familiar with the concept? I don't know no. if you talked about it. Okay, so it started off as an essay and then became a whole book um, by Graeber looking at um, the uh, the prevalence of work that doesn't actually add anything meaningful to the economy. Oh, no, I am familiar with this. So he, he highlights, I think it's five, maybe six different categories. I can't remember all of them off the top of my head. But um, so things like... Um, an electrician comes round, there is a perfectly available um, solution to your electrical problem. Mm. And instead of doing that, he does something that, um, you know, he gets paid and it's something that will break in six months. Yeah. So he comes back and he gets paid again and he keeps doing the same thing. Yeah. He's just created more work for himself, which he will get paid for. And it looks like rather than uh, uh, 50 pounds being spent, 100 pounds has been spent. This is adding to the economy. Mm. And really, the first lump of work is adding nothing economically. Mm. It's actually, it's detracting. Mm -hmm. So there's that. There's things that are like box ticking for the sake of box ticking. There's things like um, a lot of people want to have a secretary because it makes them look more powerful <laughs> and therefore makes people want to buy from them more. Yeah. Um, there's also, oh, there's a couple more and I can't quite remember what they are. Um yeah, it, it doesn't matter necessarily for the, this argument, but but basically he posits that um, probably about 50% of work done economically in the Western world is bullshit work. So it doesn't actually add anything meaningful, which does then kind of track with the fact that 50% of Brits report thinking that their work is meaningless. So I, I think there's a very good reason to, to assume that a lot of the work being done... I mean, I, I suppose inefficient work would also come under this, especially if it's done... Inefficiently, where there is a perfectly available and known about alternative. Can I posit? Yeah. That okay. So using the secretary example, mm -hmm. so we have somebody um, who is working in a doctor's office. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, some of my stereotypes and constructions that come out in this. Um, they want a PA because they want that person to make them look like they are more important and doing more important things than potentially maybe they are. Okay, so they hire that person and um, you're saying that because that person is hired in because of that, they therefore, their work is bullshit work. But what, but, the, but ultimately, like our world is built from social constructions. Like, so if that then actually does create this image of this person maybe 
being more important and doing more important work than they actually are, which then creates a line of customers coming up to get that work done sure. by them, then could those things not... But then what you're doing is you're saying, okay, so this bullshit begets more bullshit, which begets bullshit, which begets bullshit, but all of it has like a train of like economic value associated to it. It's still not genuinely impacting life. But that person's being, but that PA's being paid and they're therefore being able to be mobile and... Yeah, so now what it comes down to is that company, rather than being an economic entity, is now daycare. (laughs) It it is now there. And this comes down to um, uh, one of the reasons the government is so keen to keep employment high, or I should say to keep unemployment low, um, and they actually... I would say kind of in a bastardly fashion, uh, abuse companies to treat staff. I'm not explaining this very well, but basically the so much work is literally just there so that people are in work because when unemployment is high, crime increases, um, discrimination increases, rebellion increases and governments don't like that. Because we have this acceptance that if you're not doing something if you're not doing work that looks i don't know i'm I'm now not explaining this very well but ultimately if you're not in a job you're not valuable you're not adding anything and we don't see other things and like growing vegetables and being a friend and um well i'd say being a friend you know growing vegetables do add economic value and actually this is unseen economic value because it never gets taxed and no money ever gets exchanged yeah hidden labor yeah 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 so um more so what i'm saying is so i think the idea that we should we should still just value everybody equally regardless of whether they're in work is actually not helpful entirely for the people themselves because a lot of people don't feel like they're adding anything to the world and we're highly socially driven people so i i think there's a degree of, and part of the thing I'm getting to with once everything's automated, like let's let's say everything goes really well and we get to post-scarcity utopia, uh, what, what I'm calling the blue zone. Um, we, we get to the blue zone. Yeah. Then I think like the real battle starts. Um, apologies if you can hear the cat meowing in the background. He's a, as we said, Toby Boy's going to become a, a recurring member of the cast. He's so infuriating. I love him, but oh my God. <laughs> um, so even if we get to the blue zone in, in perfect fashion and everybody's like uh, comfortable, they're catered to, um, no one has to worry about food, shelter, etc. ever again and can just focus on like the self-actualization tier of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yeah. That's when the real work starts because we have nowhere near the degree of social and spiritual technology we have for people to actually continue to find their lives meaningful in that world. What proportion of the world derive their meaning from the perpetual emancipation from struggles or doing a hard day's work that they feel uh, actually adds tangibly to the people and things around them. I'd say we're in the high 90s Mm. on that. And as more and more gets automated, one of two things is going to have to happen. Either, um, and this is on the assumption that I'm correct and that there will be work the barrier to work will actually increase to such a point where no humans can do most work and it's just mm-hmm. taken over by AI. One of two things will happen. Um, we'll have some kind of universal basic income. No one has to do anything. And then we have to figure out um, 
other mean uh, other ways of generating meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, or I've entirely forgotten the second second option. There, like, uh, well, things y- go to yeah, or things go to ratchet basically. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, uh, from f- from my perspective, we've got to help people either find ways of generating meaning without the dependence on work. Yeah. Um, or, or we end up in some kind of like weird Brave New World-esque scenario where everybody's just kind of like mandated to be happy. Um, mm. Like, I, I don't think... Oh, oh, no, I remember that option number two is manufactured struggle. I see. So, and th- this for me was kind of... Isn't that the same thing? Isn't that a very Brave New World kind of... It, it kind of... Well, it's slightly different because I do think it's different. One, one of them is... Um, one of them is built on deceit, the other is built on force. Mm. Um, which I think is slightly different. In one of them, you are force-feeding force feeding people chemicals mm. to force them into a particular way of thinking. And in the other, what you're doing is, and I think I should phrase it this way, you're creating an environment in which people can make decisions, mm-hmm. some of which make them happy, and some of which don't, and that they have a perpetual thing to optimise against. Mm. Creating an environment in which people can fulfill self-actualization goals sounds very healthy Mm. we're always aiming to do that anyway we're just doing it in the blue zone now where there's no actual scarcity we'd be trying to manufacture scarcity or perhaps it becomes who can be the best real artist and we have or or i think hunger games is an interesting example of this minus the fact that people actually like die and stuff but um it's an environment of manufactured struggle um I'm getting a lot of kind of Colosseum esque well, yeah. images in my head right now. Yeah, what, what, what is the Blue Zone Colosseum going to look like? Mm. Or, so, or, or the Blue Zone Art Gallery? The reason why we're having this conversation is because a lot of, or the, the catalyst for this conversation is that a lot of the events that we go to, are, which are um, industry focused, I have lots of SMEs in them, yeah. in the audience, that, you know, one of the time and time again you know they're posing the question of what's going to happen as our work is automated or how do I keep my team enthused about creating this journey with me creating this product with me when you know ultimately they're part of the creating of the system which is potentially going to replace them in the end um and so what is the answer what what how do you okay so we've explained that that even though they're being told by lots of the media not to worry about these things and that all of these um people in political power and and especially those who are policy makers are you know they're on the they're on it and it's going to create all of this gdp which well and i think if anything this is the problem like it's the fact that and I mean, we were talking about this a little bit earlier. I, I think a lot of this is going to be the same problem as we had over the pandemic in terms of our trust of institutions. Mm. We were perpetually lied to about certain things. Yes. And even if they were like done for the sake of the greater good, they have overall eroded the trust of people. Yes. And so we're now into that kind of utilitarian versus virtue ethics question of like, is it okay to like subvert one of your values in the short term because it's going to have like a utilitarian effect. Mm. And like, I think that the pandemic, at least for such a large scale issue, has shown like really no, that the idea was we're going to um, 
basically to stop PPE running out, we're going to lie to people and say it doesn't work, mm-hmm. but then we'll retcon on that, and then we'll say it does work, and here, have some. By which point you'd already lost everything. Yeah. Um, and so from my perspective, the fact that governments and... Uh, I mean, the, a lot of the thing that catalyzed the post I put out was this, this uh, blog by PwC talking about how generative AI alone was going to add $7 trillion to the global economy. And in the process, I think they suggested something like 300 million jobs would be automated. And they're saying this is like a good thing because 40% of our jobs didn't, sorry, 60% of our jobs now didn't exist in 1940. This is just the everyday trend. Mm. And so they're trying to say, no, this is just normal. This is is maybe just a slightly faster paced business as usual. Mm. And I really don't buy it because of this extra thing. Mm. Uh, that this extra underpinning layer that the skill requirement for work is going up. Yeah. We are going to hit a point where, um, being very crude about it, people aren't smart enough to even retrain. I think we're going to have a stage where retraining will be an option. Mm. And I think we need to make the most of that stage. And during that stage, we need to be figuring out, okay, well, how's the economy going to function after this? Mm. Um, even things like, and this is where robotics comes in, manual labour. Everybody was like, yeah, manual labour, that'll be safe. It's like, I'm not sure if you've noticed, like, lumberjacks are starting to be put out of work because we've got giant fucking machines mm. that can strip a tree, cut it down, cut it into segments, and pile it. Yeah. Almost on full auto. How long before it's actually full auto? How long before that ex- extends to mining? Mm. Which I think we should do, because mining's fucking dangerous. Mm. And a lot of this comes back to like my moral stance on a lot of the AI stuff is we simultaneously have a duty to make the most of this technology and to continue pushing it because it's entirely possible that AI emancipates us from illness forever. Mm. We find a new way of doing drug discovery or we create, um, I've been talking to people a lot about um, bacteriophage research, which you can use to create effectively tailored antibiotic with almost no side effect that is specific to one particular organism in your body. And we're going to get to a stage where we can just produce that on an individual basis like that. Mm. We have, we have the ultimate moral responsibility to make that happen. And simultaneously we have again, the absolute moral responsibility to make sure we don't kill ourselves off before we get there or allow the economy to collapse before we get there. Mm. And that's for me, the real crux of a lot of the work that you and I are doing is how do we how do we balance those two things? Well, the, the things that come to my mind right now are, you know, I, I think one point is education and how we train. Um, and I don't know if I have to go into the deep politics of it, but, you know, one of my things that I see as truth is that ultimately we are kept within an education system which keeps us um, from not being free thinkers and from regurgitating information that is yeah. set to us and outdated information outdated no information and that we are educated in environments which are wholly not conducive to actually getting the best out of our children and, and even out of our adults who go back into education yeah. um and well, that, a lot of this is about the history of the education system yeah and the, and the power structures that surround it yeah and i mean so let's look at it historically Education used to be about, um, not the general populace, it was about breeding the next educated Absolutely, elite. Absolutely, yes. And at the time, that was, as far as I'm concerned, a perfectly useful thing to do. Good leadership is a very good thing to have, and I think we're suffering from a lack of it today. Mm. 
And I think a lot of that is because the education system is still focused on linear, where a lot of the big problems of today are systemic. They are complex systems. They are non-linear, interconnected, networked issues. Mm -hmm. that, that for me is problem number one. Problem number two is that in the transition of education being about the elites to it being about the everyday person and you know obviously teaching absolutely everybody to read and write is huge there's still unfortunately a significant proportion even of britain that doesn't read or write which i was shocked to find out but um the you know that that's a really great thing and i'm sure has contributed hugely to our scientific understanding of the general ability and economy of, of the country but um ultimately the government incentive was we wanted to educate because we want workers. Yeah. And the difficulty is the education system hasn't, like the curriculum has not changed to account for the fact that, well, actually, like basic arithmetic, that, that's not going to be, you know, really done on the day to day anymore. Mm. Um, putting people into the trades, well, it's not really going to be a, th a thing much either. Lawyers and accountants, accountancy less so, L lawyers, like prime candidate for automation. Mm. Most of their work is read through long. Yeah. text, try to extract bits of semantics, compile them, and then create advice based on that. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if you've noticed, ChatGPT can do that really, really well. Mm. And it doesn't need to be perfect, because if you are faster and you have an intuition for some of this, even if it, like, I think this can automate like 90% of lawyers' research time, which means that 90% of law time is either going to have to vanish or be reappropriated to focus on other aspects. Law firms are going to become smaller. So. Even people that were being told, you know, culturally, law is a really big thing to go into. Medicine is a really big thing to get into. I think medicine's a little safer than, quite a bit safer actually than law. Yes. I think accountancy is actually quite safe in this, to the same degree as medicine. Mm. But we're going to see a lot of things change culturally. The education system isn't anywhere near catching up. Mm. And I think the fundamental thing that needs to happen is we need to start breeding people, not who, well, effectively who have the ability to rapidly retrain, but also understand first principles thinking. They can reason about anything, so long as they're given some context. And they can understand about the interconnectedness of things. When we talk about... Um, I always refer to him as a philosopher. I don't know what he would refer to himself as. Um, but I think philosopher is probably out. Uh, Daniel Schmachtenberger. He, he refers to a lot of what we're undergoing as a meta-crisis. Mm. Lots of independent systems. Food, supply chain, energy pandemic, etc, etc. All of these things are coalescing into one mega system, meta system perhaps, and it's problems in the meta layer that are now emerging that have the potential to mess up everything underneath it. Yeah. And we need to try and solve those. Yeah. No one's got any training on that. Mm -hmm. At least not in the general populace. I mean, I, I, I've done my best to try and like worm my way through different people's work to get an understanding of this thing, but it's bloody hard. Mm -hmm. And this is where the big work, the at least for now unautomatable work sits. And I think this has to be, especially if we're talking about doing it democratically, one of the big focuses for the next 10 years. Um, because if we don't get there ahead of time, we're going to see rapidly, I think. Um, so we're currently in the green zone, jobs wise. Yeah. Um, automation isn't actually increasing unemployment. We'll then go through the yellow zone, which is we we're just in uh, a spot where the sl uh, a small proportion of automation is causing people to drop out of the bottom of the economy and have nothing to do. So then we'll have a small increase in the uptake of uh, benefits. Um, 
perhaps for a while that will cause people to take up community efforts which don't necessarily add to GDP but do add to culture which in itself does kind of add to GDP etc we'll go through that and we'll get progressively further into that and then it'll start to look worrying mm. but because we're on an exponential curve we're talking the green zone has been a thousand years the orange zone is going to be 50 100 I, I don't know then we get to the red zone where actually like a significant proportion of the population has nothing to do they're going to be economically desperate what's that going to lead to i mean i think when we look at places like san francisco right now the massive rise in poverty and in crime etc i think that's a very real thing that's going to happen i think it's possible to get through all of those stages and get through to the point where the ai capacity or technological capacity to do stuff is now so good that no work has to be done by anyone mm-hmm. and that includes governance but in order to get there and have a positive, what I call the blue zone, so this kind of post-singularity economic area where all work is... The lump is still growing, but it's being grown and accomplished by entities that are non-human. Mm. Non-human is a... You know, that's a whole other conversation. Mm-hmm. There are ways of getting there, but we have to get so many individual things right. Mm. We have to understand the economic factors, the cultural factors, the spiritual factors, as we've talked about. Mm-hmm. Then we have to solve AI alignment, mm. and we haven't even solved human alignment yet. Mm-hmm. And then we have to decide, like, what's humanity's role in the entire galaxy and then the universe? Because ultimately, like, and this is when we get start getting into, like, the ridiculous big territory that is probably a bit too too much for this podcast, but, like... But by then we probably will have, you know navigated our way further into space and started to yeah. uh... or we will very rapidly hereafter yeah because not having a biological body to feed makes space travel a hell of a lot easier yes it's lighter weight it's uh you don't have to worry about solar flares as much you don't have to do blah blah, blah. so you just have to worry about fuel basically so like back yeah like <laughs> We're going to go through the process, yeah. assuming, again, assuming we don't accidentally annihilate ourselves in the process, of going through all of those zones, I would like to say within our lifetime, or we're going to start seeing the effects of it within our lifetime. I, I'm always very remiss to try and put timelines on things because I don't, I don't like forecasting per se, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of work that's got to be done. And going back to my point earlier, governments really, really like when businesses look after their people because it means the government doesn't have to look after the people. Mm. We've had a massive crisis of leadership in government. Yes. Pretty much everywhere in the Western world. Yes. It's turned from a lesser of two evils to an evil of two lessers problem. Yes. I don't see that changing until the education system changes. Mm. Or we see some kind of massage, uh, massage, massive mm-hmm. um, surge of independent education happening, which I would like to think could happen online but i think um i'm thinking like a udemy or open university or you know some random political leader puts together an online course on here's how to govern um and then effectively we end up with digital feudalism again or something like i don't don't know there's like so many ways that could go but changing the education system that's like a 30 year turnaround to see any significant improvement maybe 20 Mm -hmm. like if we started today um and so I guess coming back to some of my kind of personal interest here, like for me, the big interest here is we need to get people talking about some of this stuff yeah. and we need organizations to start really thinking, okay, how do we, I, I used to be in the camp of like, I, I still am in this camp. I'm not going to do any work for you um, automation wise that is going to cause you to lay people off. 
I will happily do work for you that will increase your growth mm-hmm. and the amount of work that you can do with your existing workforce. Mm-hmm. Because I do think that the only way that we're going to get through this with the current degree of leadership ability we have is if businesses themselves start taking on the the, the mantle of uh, steward over their stuff. And that's a stopgap solution. I think if companies don't actually care about their staff, a lot of redundancies will be made. A lot of homelessness, economic uh, duress is going to occur as a result. And I don't think any action that we do is going to be quick enough. So founders who are listening to this, no pressure. Yeah, no pressure. Like, do, <laughs> do rapid sustainable growth. I mean, part of me is still in the accelerationist camp. Like, we just got to move quickly because technology could could be our savior if done right. Yeah. Please make sure you're doing it responsibly and ethically. Um, yeah. I really, I I think one of the things I, there are two things that I want to go back to. So one is I would really love to think that this provides us an opportunity to rethink how we are meaningful to each other mm-hmm. and i know that that is scary for people you know i have conversations about this with lots of different sorts of people um those you know who have different roles in my life and you know ultimately a lot of the feedback that i get is fear it's this fear because we you know we're 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 told we're we're raised in a world where work equals so much to what who we are and what we mean and how we you know even show love and support mm. and and you know real kind of fundamental spiritual things yeah. um and i would really just love people to listen to this and and contemplate like what else do you bring to the world and to the people who are around you and what could our world look like if we didn't have this overarching narrative that work equals who i am Mm. um i'd also think even before you get to that stage like we're now in systems territory rather than linear territory the decisions and the cultural epithets that we hold Mm. do impact the wider system. Mm. As individuals, we can all make decisions today that make the world look better in five years. Yeah. Even small, tiny things. The process of doing a small thing that is better than what you were doing before signals to everybody around you that that is A, acceptable, and B, is like something people can and should do. And so I think of this in terms of, like, the workforce. How many people would much rather be doing something else that's way more meaningful and they feel would add more? And they're capable of doing that. But there's, like, a small leap of courage that's required. Yes. Or a, a small change in lifestyle. Yeah. Um, I, I've seen this happen time and time again where people end up on the hedonic treadmill, which, for, for those listening who, who don't know what that is, it's this, the, in the endless pursuit of happiness, um, are we get rewired neurochemically mm. rewires the wrong word we rebalance yes. neurochemically yeah. for whatever normal is mm-hmm. so we could get the new job that we always wanted and for two weeks we feel absolutely elated mm. and then our neurochemistry returns back to normal and that just feels like common and we're searching for the next hit mm-hmm. and we see people perpetually on this train like if i just get the next thing i'll be happy mm. the next thing 
And generally speaking, the higher up that ladder you go, the more likely you are to be doing something that you don't believe is meaningful anymore. Mm. And so I think a lot of a lot of the things that I'm often... People ask, like, yeah, but Chris, practically, what do I do? Not uh, great, this, philo uh, this philosophical discussion is great and I'm interested, but practically, what can I do now? And for me, it's just return to basics. Yeah. Do you believe in what you're doing? Mm. If no, figure out why. Could you find it meaningful? Could you find it legitimately rewarding? Mm. Can we take a step back for five minutes and look at the stuff that we're working on? So, like, the big reason I've taken a step away from... The, the company that I founded and have been running for five years is because I realised that actually I think my time is best spent doing this kind of thing and having these conversations. Yeah. Because it, it's it's more important now, yeah. I think. That's not to say what I was doing before wasn't important, but there are people who would get more out of that than I did, mm -hmm. which, which is one of the reasons I've moved on. So it's these small little things. Do the right thing. Do what you think is genuinely important. And if you can, take those small leaps of courage, because I think not only is it going to lead to a more meaningful life for you, or a more contented, if not a more happy life, because I think there is a difference between those two things. And, like, think about all of the huge... Like, the problems that seem huge, okay? Loneliness, uh, poverty... Um, there's a dog barking, so it's really distracting <laughs> <in> my brain. <laughs> um, but, you know... I think loneliness is a huge one, but also things like, you know, the, the climate crisis that we're in. We're in a state of climate emergency. Um, if you say otherwise, then... <laughs> I wasn't going to say otherwise, I think. <laughs> no, I don't mean you. Okay. I, I mean anyone listening to this. Um... Well, I would actually welcome disagreement on the point. Oh, goodness me. Okay, well, let's do that for another day. Yeah. But... I think it's the first big disagreement we've had on the podcast. It's, remember last episode, we were like ticking every time. It's like, oh, oh my God, yeah. we agreed on something. Oh, yeah. I think it's the first. Yeah, from, from my perspective, I, I think people claiming scientific consensus on it, I think are wrong. Mm. I, think it's, I think it's an issue. Mm. And, and people should be open to thinking it's an issue. Okay, sure thing. Um, no. Uh, <laughs> let's do this another day. Yeah. But these kind of big, huge issues could be solved if we were able to put more time into our community mm. and it's almost like stru the, the structures of power the people of power don't want us to um be there for our community and stop those things from happening i'm not entirely sure i agree with that okay because i, I look at like religious institutions yeah who have been powerful historically and still are to a great extent and they're perpetually calling for like Guy, just come to church every Sunday. Bare minimum. Please. Please just continue in engaging with your community. It's just stopped working. Oh, I've got so many thoughts on that. Because I'm thinking, you familiar with Dunbar's number? Yes. There's only so many people that you can know. Yes. Like, like for me, a lot of this, I don't... For, for the first time in a long time, I think a lot of this... I don't think the power structures at B... I mean, you're mostly referring to government, I think. And yes, perhaps I am, yeah. Yeah. They're not in the driver's seat. I don't think they've been in the driver's seat for five to ten years. I think I'm talking about government and I'm talking about large conglomerates. I think the only large conglomerates that still matter on this front are social media companies. And big tech. Big tech, I suppose, in general. Pharma. I don't think big pharma have necessarily a huge incentive to destroy communities. I think if anything, communities are a good marketing scheme for them. Uh, if you're kept, if so, we so we are both individuals who uh, welcome. I resent that. I'm actually a hive mind. Sure. I'm not an individual. Okay, we're okay. We're part of a hive mind. No. <laughs> <laughs> but 
Um, I don't know. That's too no, much of a tangent Sorry. right now. But keeping people lonely equals keeping them sick. Like, we both practice holistic medicine. Um, we're both, you know, people who believe in science and we believe in um, concepts of Western medicine. Mm-hmm. But we also very much are people who dedicate our lives to holistically thinking about yeah. our health, um, not just, you know, yeah, I see the argument. body, but the mind. And so I do think there are these ish like there are people who make money from keeping people uneducated, lonely and poor. Yeah, no, I can see that. Yeah, I, I take your point. I think for me, all of those, any other parties attempting to make that influence are now doing so via social media companies and media companies. I them. agree with that. Yes. Um... And, and so for me, that like I, I don't use social media. I, I use LinkedIn sparingly because I, yeah, I have to I, for work. We're both the same. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, I, I don't use any other social media really, mm-hmm. um, because I think it's um, mind-numbing. Um, more than that, I think it's it's mind-altering. Yeah, it is mind-altering. Um, yes. So, purposefully, it's developed by. Oh, is it purposefully? Uh, yes. I I think this is a general trope between the two of us, where I think you're more likely to ascribe. Uh, Intent. Yeah, and personal yeah. decision, where. I think for most things, I, I view them as um, everything is the result of incentive. Mm. Okay. And and people make choices within that, but overall the pressure is going to be... that th- There's such a strong gravity, so yes, there are outliers here and people who do good, but a lot of people will just take the, the, the easy road. Yeah, whereas I am always thinking for the best of... I, I, I just... Oh. Like I think I I've f- got a lot more hope as well. I think that's maybe... No, I, I think I'm, I'm very hopeful about some of this stuff because okay. I, I actually think that there are ways of us rejigging social media algorithms to be better for people and to be... Well, so I never thought I'd say this, but China's use internally of things like TikTok seems actually kind of healthy to me, largely. Explain. So, yeah, yeah. Okay, those who <laughs> can't see explained. it, Anna is giving me the evil. <laughs> um, so, for example, um, like I, I've had some, let's call them spicy views on TikTok, because oh, I, because I, because like I, 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 I think it's a, a cultural weapon, and I, like I, and that I say phrase. that with, with every intent, um, uh, it, I, I think, I think it's evil and and damaging and dangerous. Um, but then you look at the the way it's deployed in China. People who log onto the app, most of what they're seeing is education, mm. mentorship, mm-hmm. how to live a good life. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's been a massive resurgence of Buddhism and Stoicism. Mm-hmm. Um, which is somewhat worrying because that kind of implies that the, the company who run TikTok, whose name has temporarily slipped my mind, uh, we can come back to it, um, who are, you know, part owned by the CCP are now manufacturing religious belief. Um, that, that, that's quite intriguing. But like, generally speaking... Shao Chu. Shao Chu, thank you. Um, I was also thinking that there's a... That there's a like a US subsidiary. Mm. I can't remember what it's called. Um, it also doesn't particularly matter for the sake of conversation. Bite dance. Bite. Yeah, yeah, that's the one. Yeah, bite dance. That's it. Um, and yeah, so basically, the the stark difference in the way the algorithms work out there versus here, 
I think implies to me that, you know, at least when the financial incentive for TikTok is removed, mm. which it is in China, um, it can do very powerful good things for people. The question is, can we make a um, different financial model um, or a different way of creating long-term value from it, mm. from the systems, um, that change the incentive structure such that more positive content is shown? And I think the answer is yes. And I will, again, bring up something. That I won't call it controversial. Most people just think this is stupid. Sorry, this is literally reminding me of our conversation about Brave New World. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, th th there's a couple of ways we get there, but I was going to go down something totally different. Now, okay, you actually. go. Um, uh, uh, I, I get very, very frustrated um, at a lot of the events we go to because people will just like, oh, yeah, and you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Or, you know, if people are even st still using Twitter. It's like, actually, from my perspective, Twitter's doing a really, really good job right now. Um, I, I think in the grand scheme, they're trying out alternative monetization models, which give them algorithmic freedom. So the fact that they're now trying to get people actually paying monthly, because people for years have been saying, I will pay more, I, I will pay you large amounts of money monthly, dependent on how many followers or views I get or whatever, to get some additional functionality, some additional analytics, access to openly to my data. I will pay you monthly for all of that, please. And if they do that, suddenly they're not dependent on advertising revenue or they're less dependent. And the only reason that the algorithms continue to push things in the way that they do is because the way they make their money is by getting more people to see ads, which requires more people to stay on the app for longer and scroll longer, i.e. the more attention that is stolen, the more profitable the company. The incentive, therefore, is to spend lots of money making an app that steals people att people's attention. When you're trying out some of these alternative models, you have the option to not have to steal attention, give people exactly what they need, and let them off the app so that they can continue living their lives with this information. That's way healthier. So as much as people like to take the piss out of Elon Musk, I'm actually in the camp that he's coming up with some really smart ideas. He's coming up with some dumb ones, but he's trying them realizing they don't work and getting rid of them again, which he's done with a couple of occasions with, with Twitter already. Um, and then he's come up with this concept, which I think, if it becomes measurable, would be really powerful, which is he would like the algorithm to optimize for unregretted user minutes. How much time has someone spent on the app that they think was genuinely worthwhile and rewarding to them? That sounds like a really, really positive use of social media and algorithms in general. Thoughts? I don't know, I think my... My initial thoughts are, uh, I, I think that you will... You're creating a barrier for some people to use it. Oh, sure. Um, also, you're... Um, I'd advocate a freemium model. You can still use it, but there's like additional utility. I'm thinking mostly like content creators will want analytics. I also think like you should do a pay what you can model, which so that other people have the option of, you know, paying something forward, paying that access forward to somebody who might not be able to pay for it. Um, also, I'm concerned about the relationship between big tech and government. And sure. Well, I think the Twitter buyout was really telling on this actually i'm not sure if you saw a lot of the released documents no i've kind of as you know i uh twitter and elon musk are 
two things that I am yet to make my decisions about. Um, I think Elon Musk is a controversial character who gets a little bit too much media. Um, and I think that... I don't think he gets enough media, given he's like the most influential person in the world right now. Yeah, and maybe I don't like the that fact that he's... That might be slightly wrong. I don't think he's the most I don't think he's the most, but I but think he's, he's definitely one of the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know if I really like that. Um, it upsets me almost. So, I think which bit don't you like? Sorry. That people like him are the most influential people on the planet. Um, I don't know. This is what I mean. I, I just, I, I, I don't... I don't think I've yet made my decision sure. enough to... I think as... Well, I, I will comfortably plant my flag uh, in, in the territory of... I think overall he's probably pretty pretty great for humanity. Yeah, I know that you feel like that. I think one of... I think I also come from quite a biased perspective because I, you know, I'm mostly in the academic community and Twitter has been so important for the academic community um, in being a space where, you know, we can collaborate and communicate um and the recent developments regarding twitter have really had a massive impact and quite a negative impact on that i think that's changing and i think people are starting to you know consider the complexities of the issue and consider you know whether or not actually it could still be a very useful tool for the academic community to to collaborate and communicate on um so from my perspective i i really think a lot of this comes down to like media bias mm. so many people were anti-Musk, anti-Twitter post-Musk buying it. Mm. And that's really tarnished the way people actually see the platform. As someone who uses it intermittently because it's a really good data source, like, really not much has changed other than the fact that there are some new fun like bits of functionality, which are pretty good from my perspective. Um, I've seen academic communities on there continue to thrive, continue to post exactly the same way they have before. Um but he's allowed i think it's been the allowing of of people who were kind of there were guidelines that would uh, adhere to and he's allowed oh, i disagree with that they i know weren't you adhered to. well and this is what came out in the twitter files there was active fbi and cia involvement in twitter mm. especially around election time there were members of the bureau sending email lists of hey these people we don't like them we we suspect them of being like russian intelligence can you like do something about it, please? Can you can you shadow ban them? Can you do this and that? And this is like all evidence and has been testified in Congress. I feel like we're going on. Oh God, that was my pen. Sorry, everybody. Yeah. Um, I feel like we're going on a bit of a tangent, and we've yeah, sure. gone off our topic, which I am. Um, yeah. You know, so yeah, the, the the crux of what I was saying is that I think it is possible to retool and make things like um, Twitter, Facebook, um, maybe not Instagram or Snapchat. I think I don't think there's much utility you can gain from them in a healthy way. Um, that would be better and healthy and good for people. But I think it comes down to those incentive models, which is, again, a kind of uh, uh, like a systems, uh, what's called mechanism design. Mm. We're in the land of networked, complex, non-linear, and that's the bit that we need to solve because mm. people have no education on it. So my other, so there's two other things. I know that I, I said there were two, but another one's come in to, popped in as we've been talking. Um, so I think I'd like to go back to when we were talking about the so-called developed, developing and non-developed um, parts of the world. And um, 
I'm forgetting the language that I um, am supposed to use because I have read about this now we and can read it next week, with some amazing people who've done a lot of amazing research on this stuff and the impact of the language surrounding it and yes um, I will definitely have to talk about that at the beginning of the next one um, I really don't like the fact that we've just kind of gone oh they'll be consumed you know whether or not that's by the climate emergency or, or and the sea or by um, you know, just being... Sorry to clarify, you're talking about the the non-developed yeah, world. Uh, yes, okay, yeah, sorry, yeah, sorry, yes. Um, and I, I don't like the fact that we've just kind of gone, oh, they'll be consumed and now we're moving on with the rest of the conversation. That to me sound, feels very... Um, I don't like it. Um, I'd like us. I'd like to think that if we're being hopeful about how these technologies can change our ideas about the so-called workforce and um and our ideas around work and our, our you know and how that impacts how we feel as a, as a human being and, and our value as as this consciousness um in this consciousness i i would like to think that that isn't just us thinking about you know the uk or the west i'd like us to consider how that could impact everybody globally. I am definitely of the opinion that, you know, we have these imaginary lines that have been created over uh, so-called history and time. Um, I wouldn't call it so-called history. I think it was, I think it was actually history. Well, but... yeah, let's talk about that another time. Okay. Um, I... Um... Yeah, I, I'd like to think that these emerging technologies can also stop us from thinking like that and, and help us develop more of a, an equal system or equitable system globally. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if we I, have to... Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm slightly in disagreement with that. Not, not like overall, your point is we're going to be able to globally make use of this technology to help people. And that's going to be, I obviously agree with that bit. I do think that a lot of these imaginary borders in some ways are useful because like from my perspective, what it allows us to have is globally multiple individual entities trying different strategies mm. and different cultural presuppositions. I don't think we're ever going to get to a point where we've just like solved uh, law and mm. uh, religious belief and cultural beliefs and all of that stuff. So I think actually having, I do think that having distinct countries or nation states, etc., etc., that have strong boundaries that operate in slightly different ways as a form of um, natural selection on culture is still useful. So I would like to think that we could do, like deploy a lot of this technology globally and that people use it or not use it as they see fit in their mm -hmm. countries. Um, and also do things like facilitate easy immigration to countries that are open to that strategy so that we can see like uh, which strategies are liked or disliked by various populations. Um, other than that, I'm in agreement with you. I just think, I'm very much in the, the the camp of a global, a single unified global economy would be very fragile. I don't think that's what I'm, though I know that that's not what I'm arguing for. Um... Well, it sounds to me like the, the erasure of borders for me is synonymous with the, the desire for a globalised, a, a unified global culture. No. I, I'm not sure I see a way of getting to one without the other i think this needs to be another episode yeah we can definitely do that because i think the last thing i wanted yeah. to talk about was how this moves into this idea of ai 
being the fourth industrial revolution. Oh, yeah. I think it's really important to bring that yeah. into this conversation. Sure. I also think that that is going to be a whole episode on its own. Sure. Because it's such a huge buzzword or yeah. buzz phrase. Um, I mean, and... Do you want to give us the Cliff Notes version of, for one, what, what you think people mean um, about industrial revolution? So people are likening... Um, emerging AI and AI-enabled technologies as being the next version of the, the fourth industrial revolution and are likening them to the other industrial revolutions that have happened um, in time. And what that means is that ultimately these technologies are transforming the workforce and our ideas around labour um, and also the um, socio-political impacts of that too. Um, so, you know, we're talking about, for example, um, you know, how the, what I mean by the socio-political and socio-cultural um, things that stem from that as well are um, the idea of the uh, produced and the producer and, and I suppose they're quite Marxist ideas of how ultimately the way that labour is set up and the way that the workforce is set up also impacts um, our hierarchies um, socially and culturally. Um, so who is valued more and who isn't valued and, and what they're meaning to And, and I think a lot of this is. kind of links in with one of the big things about the discussion is that most of the change that's going to happen isn't going to be just like AI on its own. It's mm. going to be AI being used by a particular calibre of person or particular yes. type of person in a particular way to achieve a particular goal. Yeah. So a lot of the next era is going to be about how do um, I, I think it's the natural anthropological um, step um, of tool usage. Before we were just making flint and steel and then we created uh, the auction plow, then machinery, then computers. And now we're creating AI that are going to co-pilot with us. Mm. There are going to be people who are really good at co-piloting within AI and there are going to be people who really aren't good at doing that um, or don't want to do it. Um I think in the end, those that are co-piloting with AI assistants will probably do much, much better. Um, one of my big hopes is that uh, as part of this new era, people don't lose some of the underpinning skills. Mm. So Plato used to talk about like the invention of writing. Not that we ever think about it. writing has ever been invented. Uh, it's just so natural and everyday to us that we don't really think about it. But it, it was it was created over a period of time everywhere in the world. And, and he would say the the invention of writing reduced our memories. Mm. And in some ways he's absolutely right. Suddenly, rather than having spoken word poetry, so Homer and, and kind of uh, folkloric mm -hmm. uh, epics, suddenly everything's written down, nobody needs to memorise them anymore. And that's definitely true, but it freed up our bandwidth to focus on other things. At the same time, I think it would have been great if most people retained really excellent memories. And I think what's going to happen is we're going to have a lot of people doing some... I see this happening for software engineering over a period of time, which is the kind of area I'm most comfortable talking about on this, where um, the AI will start doing the basic bits of coding on its own. Yeah. But at the same time, like, we... People say, you know, you'll be able to give the AI... If you, if you can specify it well enough and give it clear enough instructions, it'll be able to, you know, make the thing happen. It's like creating a high enough degree specification that tells the computer what you want it to do and how with what date that just sounds like coding to me that that is almost by definition coding so people take it to an extreme of like 
well, people will now be able to, in plain language, do coding, mm. which we're already kind of doing. So I, I think there's, there's, there's some misnomers there. I think it's interesting that you've pointed out language information and knowledge here, because mm. one of the, you know, we've had this conversation. Um, one of the reasons why I want to bring this whole idea of AI being the fourth industrial revolution um, to the forefront of, of our conversations is because um, I think that that is misleading we've agreed that you know it's potentially that is part of it yeah. but also it's about it's more like for me the um the the kind of encouraging or the democratizing of language and um writing mm -hmm. spe specifically writing yeah. um being democratized and and being taught to the masses um because it's about the uh, input and output of knowledge yeah. what we select as knowledge and what we don't and who is provided the power to select and input and output See, that knowledge that's a whole episode that we need to do on um like trust and um fact verification online yeah um because there's there's so much in there so yeah absolutely but i think to just dismiss it's almost dismissing ai as just the next industrial revolution is misleading because it kind of takes away part of the crux of the issue which is that this isn't just about workforce and labor this is about knowledge communication well. and ways of 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 thinking about meaning mm. um and so yeah. Well, and fundamentally, if, if we get to the stage of doing everything digitally, the metaverse, etc., etc., like that's that's a total sh like the way we interact with the world full stop mm -hmm. is going to be is going to change. Um, and, you know, if we think about the impact that the ox drawn plow had, I think a global democratized AI digital universe might have slightly bigger ramifications still. Right. It's getting very hot in here. Yeah. And. And we're about time anyway. So I think, you know, we've managed to cover a lot. We've covered yeah. automation, the skills gap that's going to increase. Um, if people want some more info on that, you're more than welcome to message me. Um, what else have we covered? Twitter, government. Yeah. Uh, systems, knowledge, knowledge. Meaning. What it means to be a human being. Yeah. Uh, value of humans and society. Bullshit work. Uh, bullshit work, yeah. All of these terms you can go and Google and look up. Yeah, you know, read we need to stop book. saying just Google though. We need to say some good, like Ecosia. Uh, that's one. Um, uh, look, yeah, Google's a general. <laughs> you, you know, I saw someone the other day. Um, oh, I've got like I've got like I've got one random fact I need to throw okay. as well. I, I heard someone the other day talking about how um that they, they put like better than fifty percent odds that Bing takes over as lead search engine in the next five to ten years because of their acquisition of OpenAI. And I, I'm I'm actually kind of in that camp too. I, th I think Google's hate. Oh, I haven't possibly even thought about end. that. Yeah. That, that's the main reason they bought them. Oh, wow. the, I, I don't think Google have the pace of innovation anymore to, to keep up with it. And they've got OpenAI and that. Yeah. Deep, DeepMind is doing some fucking great work. And I think DeepMind's one of the most brilliant teams on the planet. But they're not doing anything in the information uh, like aggregation space. Um, what I want to talk about right now, I can't talk about uh, legally. Well, don't tease us with that, <laughs> bastard. So, ran random little fact I wanted to, to throw in um, on the point of... Um, the democratization of reading and things like that. Um, I, I was reading about this a couple of years ago. Um, apparently, in the kind of the era of, of uh, Dickens, um, people used to. Um, I think of them as like the earliest podcasters or audiobooks. Mm. There'd be people on the streets who knew how to read and had copies of Dickens's books. Yeah, and they would stand on street corners, 
and start reading. Yeah. And people would gather regularly and pay, you know, whatever small denomination of money at the time was, um, to listen to someone basically audiobook Dickens to them. I'm like, people have been brilliant, creative, resourceful humans for like as long as humans have been around. I I, I just love that story. Like, are you saying we should do this on a street corner? You know, don't give me ideas like that. <laughs> I think we could definitely do like a pop up. Hey, stall that would be cool. Talking about stuff. Live Q&A. Dudes, gals and pals, like, if you would like us to do that, let us know, because yeah. that could be a really interesting the idea. phrasing dudes, gals and pals implies that our pals are not dudes and gals. Yes. And it feels kind of slightly exclusive. Uh, all my pals. Yeah. All, all the homies. <laughs> anyway, right, okay, we are very much at time. Yes. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I hope you enjoyed. As usual, please let us know if we messed anything up, missed anything, <laughs> or if there's anything you'd like us to dive into more. We're going to go and enjoy some kombucha and the rest of the sunshine here in Exeter. Yes, and apologies for Toby and the Barky Dog. Yes. Um, take care, and thank you for joining us. Much love. Bye. Bye.